Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snedden. You know, we're going to have to work on that because it seems more infrequently that it's two guys. Like, we need help every week. Yeah, you know, I was actually just uh, catching up my little spreadsheet, my little, uh, little book tracker. <laughs> my, and... little, my little nerd sheet. <laughs> and I'm looking at it right now. And if you look at it, um, we've had in the last of, of book reviews that we've done, of the last like eight, half of them at least have had guest uh, guest reviewers. Let's not stop that trend now. Um, if you listen to our last episode, um, you heard Craig Clevenger um, assist us in reviewing a William Gay book. Um, this week, we're bringing Mr. Clevenger back to review a Matt Bell book. Um, before we tell you too much about the book, here's a little bit about um, Craig Clevenger. And now I'm going to not do what Rob did. And I'm just going to read this in a straight, normal voice. Born in Texas and grew up in Southern California, after years of dead-end jobs and publishers' rejections, I stumbled into the pre-dot-com tech world where I spent the next decade paying my rent on time, eating regularly, and not putting pen to paper for anything creative. In 2000, I pulled the plug on my techno-rat race to resume writing, which I got to tell you is a great bio because I think he assumes at this point that you have access to what he's worked on. And he kind of gives you a little bit of background. And it's not real lengthy. And he didn't mention if he had a dog or anything. Pet scorpions. I don't know. Pet, scor- <laughs> pet scorpions named Robin Livius. Yes, pet scorpions named Robin Livius. Did you know the thing about how you can find scorpions in the dark? No. They glow under black light. Really? That's yeah. kind of interesting. And probably really terrifying if you think about it. Because now it's dark <laughs> and you have a black light on. There's glowing scorpions. As if scorpions on their own aren't <laughs> scary enough. Right. There's darkness. And glowing scorpions, like yeah. I, I don't know how that helps the situation, other than the fact that you could see them, whereas you couldn't before. But it makes you scream a little louder. I know, right? So that's a little fact. That's a little factoid for you. If you ever find yourself in the middle of the desert and you're wondering where the scorpions are, bust out your trusty black light that I'm sure you take everywhere with you. Right? Am I right about that? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's for my cool rock and roll posters. <laughs> Which you always take everywhere with you also. Well, yeah. So it covers up the stains on the motel walls because <laughs> okay. that's where you, people use their black lights to find out what kind of vicious bodily fluids are. <laughs> this is gone. This is already. We're two two and a half minutes in and we've gone completely uh, off track. Why don't uh, we tell people yeah. about Matt Bell? All right. Matt Bell is the author of the novel In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, a finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award, a Michigan notable book, and an Indie Choices Adult Debut Book of the Year Honor Recipient. That's a really long title. And the winner of the Paula Anderson Book Award. He is also the author of two previous books, How They Were Found and Cataclysm Baby. And his next novel, Scrapper, was published in September of 2015. That's the one we're going to be talking about tonight, kids. Uh, His stories have appeared in Best American Mystery Stories, Best American Fantasy, Conjunctions, Gulf Coast, which that doesn't sound like a fiction publication at all uh the american reader and many other publications he teaches creative writing at arizona state university if that was a if his uh if his first novel i'm guessing or or in the house upon the dirt between the lake and the woods was a sci-fi book that could have won for longest title award i know at one of those the the huggo awards at the huggo awards (laughs) where they just make up awards as they go Here is the synopsis brought to you by Amazon.com, who is not a sponsor of this podcast, at least not yet. Detroit has descended into ruin. Kelly scavenges for scrap metal from the 100,000 abandoned buildings in a part of the city known as The Zone. 
an increasingly wild landscape where one day he finds something far more valuable than the copper he's come to steal, a kidnapped boy crying out for rescue. Briefly celebrated as a hero, Kelly secretly avenges the boy's unsolved kidnapping, a task that will take him deeper into the zone and into a confrontation with his own past and long-buried traumas. The second novel from the acclaimed author of In the House Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods, Scrapper is a devastating reimagining of one of America's greatest cities. Its beautiful architecture, its lost houses, shuttered factories, boxing gyms, and storefront churches. With precise, powerful prose, it asks, What do we owe for our crimes, even those we've committed to protect the people we love? I can testify. It does ask that. It may answer that, too. Maybe. We'll find out. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll find out. (laughs) First, let's bring on our um, guest, friend of the show, Craig Clevenger. Craig, thanks so much for joining us once again to do a review on Booked. Thanks for having me back. Craig is the... uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's like that 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 story, that warning story, you know, about what happens when you're nice to a couple of guys who have a podcast. They just have you do it again and again and again. <laughs> Can we talk about? It the hasn't name? been a problem. Hasn't been a problem yet. <laughs> Until we somehow tarnish your career, and then um, the the whole thing changes. But can we talk about the name Craig really quick? Because we've been getting shit from across the pond. I don't know if you if you picked up on this ever. But, um, you know, Livius, you know, I'm talking about Craig Wallwork. Yeah. And it's funny because English really started there and they keep mispronouncing this name. Yeah. He every time every time we say Craig, he gets mad and he says it's Craig, like with an A-Y kind of sound. Yeah. And and in the time I spent in the UK and Ireland, that's how they pronounced it out there. Did you correct them constantly? When no, they, I've I've never thought about it. I really I knew who they were talking to, and it's, it makes sense in 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 the U.S. and how I was raised. It's always pronounced with a with a schwa e sound, you know. Um, uh, but they also will trill the r sometimes in parts of Scotland, Craig, you know. So I didn't. I'm not I'm not going to correct that. Why would I correct the hard a? That's good. <laughs> we got to teach them some manners over there because. You say their name even, you know, just a little bit wrong, and they just will never let it go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. <laughs> All right, so Scrapper. This is our um, second foray into Matt Bell territory with, with at least like a full-length thing. So we read Cataclysm Baby. I know Rob made a note, episode 86, so um, 80, 84, so a while ago. And that... Um, God, so much different from that because that was such a such a shiny happy um, book, Rob. You remember reading <laughs> Cataclysm Baby and crying like a little girl through half those stories? Yeah, um, I, th- I can't remember what we said, but there was some sort of emotional reaction that we we mentioned to Matt Bell, and I, I don't remember if he was proud of it, but like it was like disturbed or scared or something. But there was a, it was we had a a very I mean, obviously, it, it lasted in my mind, but this was like 200 episodes ago, so I have an excuse. But, like, yeah, it, it stood out. It was really disturbing and weird. So this one starts off in um, a Detroit that's, um, I don't know, and, you know, I saw a review that said a slightly in the future Detroit. So I know Detroit was uh, was doing not so well for a while, and my understanding is that they're kind of on an uptick, or at least their, like, downtown area is currently. So... This is a more desolate Detroit than at least I'm familiar with. 
and we follow um, Kelly, who's a scavenger, as mentioned in the in the synopsis. Um, you know, as he's out doing his thing, cutting copper pipes out of houses and warehouses and pulling lockers and anything he can find to um, sell to, which I didn't even know there's a secondary scrapping market. So you've got like your legit markets and then apparently like a secondary market, which is amazing to me. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, the stuff that they, they steal is, is the places that buy that are, are tightly watched by authorities. So so I've, I've done this sort of thing before on, on the legal end anyway. And so when I was doing construction or demolition, you take any pipe or metal that you've salvaged, they want all kinds of ID and, and your license plate and all that to make, you know, so they got a record of you if you're stealing it. Well, that's interesting because I've never, I, my, my exposure to scrappers has been typically, I put out metal stuff out, out behind my place of business, and within 15 minutes, there's like a couple guys loading it into the back of their truck, which is great because it doesn't feel like a monster. I never really thought about there being a black market, quote unquote, for scrapped metal and stuff. Actually, we had, um, I'm not going to remember the specifics, but um, Frank Bill at one of the readings that we went to, he read a chapter from an upcoming book of his. And it was a, a father and son who would go to abandoned houses and, and strip them of all the, the valuable materials that were still in the walls and everything. And they ran afoul of some bad people. So this isn't the first time that it's been talked about on the podcast, which is kind of cool. But yeah, um, my impression of Detroit, uh, <laughs> this might be, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to talk about what we think of Detroit now, but um, it, it, I mean, shithole <laughs> is the first one. I've been to Detroit a couple times. Um when I was a kid, and my it's it's funny because um, going back in time now, I actually recently watched the movie Beverly Hills Cop, <laughs> which I went to Detroit not long after that movie was filmed, so I was, I was still young and everything, and um, it, it was like exactly like that. Uh, so it, it's it's been always kind of a dirty, grimy kind of city in my mind, but now just the complete abandonment. Um, of of it's like the tide went out or the tide you know went back out you know because all of the the people are are kind of concentrating into one area and everything is just abandoned in the outskirts. My my knowledge about Detroit's ruin comes from uh, the the author's slipping my mind, but it was a he was a journalist. He wrote a book called Detroit: An American Autopsy. And, and did a really thorough job of explaining the rise and fall, like how it, it became such a boom town, the auto industry, obviously. But uh, what I didn't know was that it was the auto industry that was doing so well, the mass production that led to, um, you know, the, the, the dropping of price for, for cars that made them more affordable. But the auto industry basically out there, I think it was Chevrolet, I could be wrong, one of the car companies in Detroit came up with the idea of financing cars, selling them on credit, which, of course, led to an even bigger boom, bigger demand, and that made Detroit an even bigger boom town, as it were. So he chronicles this, and then, of course, the collapse is, is a result of a lot of things. But this book, Detroit American Autopsy, gave a really thorough overview of the ruin and what life is like in the ruin right now and the political corruption surrounding all of that 
but I've never been there. So that is the sum total of my knowledge of Detroit. It all comes from that book. So I looked that up. That's by Charlie Leduff and was published pretty recently, February of 2013. So I guess, yeah, that is probably a very recent um, idea. Yeah. The other time, <laughs> can I tell you about the other time I was in Detroit? You Tell do. us about the other time you were in yeah. Detroit, Rob. <laughs> so the other time I was in Detroit, I had a friend who was um, uh, illegally staying just across the border in a little town called Leamington with a person he was dating at the time. And um, he was, uh, they were fighting all the time and he was getting kind of pill addicted and everything. And he got, I got a call one night and it was like, man, I got to get out of here. And so I had to drive from Chicago up to this little tiny town just over the border and uh, pick up pick up my friend in the middle of the night uh and it was a really weird it was a winter and i don't know it's yeah, it was a really strange situation but it was basically like rescuing my friend from an abusive pill addicted relationship all right then <laughs> now i know who i gotta if i'm six hours away and strung out on pills rob will come to <laughs> I'll, I'll be like road trip yeah so that's that that's that's my two impressions of detroit so great way to start the book i think or well, and all very accurate to what was depicted in the book, I think. So very desolate um, Detroit. Um, our protagonist is um, it's a little bit of a weird guy. Uh, I don't know how to say this. I, I don't. He wasn't all quite there for me. And I don't know if that was just my perception of him. Or, or did you guys get that same? I I got that. But I don't know if it was him or the way that Matt was telling the story. Not not exactly giving us a whole lot of specifics on his interior. Yeah, I, I my original perception of our protagonist at the beginning is just that he's very he lives a very simple life and he has very simple needs and simple thoughts and doesn't really you know, um doesn't really need much beyond that. Um, so that was my read in the beginning was just that he was just like content to have a basic life without contact with the outside world or flashy, you know, things in his life. We're, um, introduced to him at a point where he is, uh, has taken an, an odd interest into a young lady that he sees drinking at a bar and he, um, and probably, and, and this is a weird book and I'm sure that we're going to talk about this book being kind of weird. And one of the weirder moments kind of starts following her home. And then. Uh, Which is not really how you want to court somebody, generally speaking. That sets off a lot of alarms when you do that. <laughs> but to be fair, it works. So that's. <laughs> right. You know. I took it as like, a, like if a dog followed you home. That was the impression I got, you know? We're introduced to another central character. In uh, whose name we don't come to find for a little bit yet, but her name is Jackie, and she is referred to by the protagonist as the girl with the limp um, frequently throughout. And one of the one of the things we'll find in this book is that he does not refer to people by their names um, very often, or really pretty much almost at all, as uh, every description uh, or every name he assigns to a person in his kind of interior monologue is you know, what sex they are or what relationship they are to somebody and not necessarily what their name is. Okay, you said interior monologue, which makes me think of the one of my first impressions of the book was that there is almost no dialogue, uh, especially in the beginning, but really throughout the whole book. 
um, which means that it's it's a lot it's very dense with uh, description and and stuff like that. So my first thought when I started reading this was like, oh man, this is gonna be like uh, that book Perfume. Remember Patrick Suskind, which was um, almost I'd say ninety percent. 90, 95% just describing things, and it was very, very dense and, like, slow reading. So I was worried that was going to be the case with this book, but I feel like it paced really well, considering there was, like, no dialogue to break up the scenes and stuff like that. It, it's funny, because it's... That's probably the the single biggest impression I had of the book from the start it's there's very little dialogue there is most people are referred to by some sort of title or moniker that the protagonist gives them like you said and generally speaking the 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 story is is told very elliptically the 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 the, the events are are held sort of at arm's length from the reader in in such it's the sentences are constructed in a way that normally i would I would chastise one of my students for doing this because there's, there's a way to make it more immediate to bring the reader directly inside of, of what's going on. And about a quarter of the way through the book, I, I realized that it was actually a really brilliant move on, on Matt's part because you have this hulking giant dude going through, you know, a, a modern day apocalypse in this city and ripping things up and tearing them apart and going through destruction and doing even more demolition and later on doing some, you know, really brutal uh, ring fighting. So all of this really brutal stuff, really heavy things are told in a way that he treats them very fragilely. The, the, this writing, the way you hold something at arm's length and kind of make it indirect has the effect of presenting you the story on like a little velvet jewel pillow. But he does that with things that don't need to be treated delicately. And I think that the, God forgive me, I hate using the word juxtaposition, but I'm going to, you know, the juxtaposition of those two things really really works brilliantly i think yeah i found for me that it gave um a lot of the scenes more of a hazy almost dreamlike quality and, and like you said kind of not i want to say being left in the dark but being left guessing occasionally um added to the feel of the book and made it a little more i don't want to say mysterious in like a mystery kind of sense but a little bit um, unreliable narrator, maybe kind of feel, but to the whole book, which I, I think in in terms of his character development, things we find out about him later in the story um, fit pretty well all, all through. Um, so story-wise, he's met Jackie, the girl with the limp, and uh, he um, continues to, to go about his stuff a little less. He's spending more time with her and getting to know her, and we find out for him that it's, his part of that relationship is more of the silent partner. He kind of is the person who absorbs what she has going on in her life and, and, and shares very little of what's going on in his. Now, to be fair, I, I would imagine that the, the life of a scrapper is not a lot of um, sharing, uh, so not as many interesting things. She, on the other hand, is a police dispatcher, 
um, who dis- I was going to explain what a police dispatcher is, dispatches police to the scene. So she has, um, and through her, I guess, we see a lot of, you know, terrible crimes that are happening um, in, in the populated and somewhat unpopulated areas of Detroit. Which it, it goes in sharp contrast to, to the scrapper who works alone clandestinely. So he, he goes throughout his entire day not seeing another soul, in fact, trying to dodge contact with people because he's breaking the law. So he never sees a human soul, and all she ever sees is people in, in great peril. And um, another effect it has on, on his life, on Kelly's life, is that um, in the beginning of the book, his general approach to life was kind of laid out. You know, he is very thrifty with his money, buys his clothes secondhand, all this kind of stuff. Um, but as he starts to have this relationship with this person, um, he starts to care about those those things in life again that you can kind of put on, you know, like a lower priority when you're just living alone and only have yourself in your life. So um, he'll buy new shirts at full price and things like that. So his life starts to to change to to fit to the mold of being like in a relationship and having people in his life. So um, her her introduction into the world starts to change him a little bit and then man it seems like everything happens at once and his life is magically different very quickly after that with the uh introduction of the kidnapped boy yeah that was an that was an interesting section um and i hadn't read the synopsis before this and i'm glad i didn't so i didn't see this coming but uh yeah he's in he calls it the zone the the pretty much ground zero of the ruin of Detroit. He's in there just blocks and blocks, I would imagine miles perhaps, of, of abandoned, derelict buildings. And uh, he's in an old house ripping out copper pipe and, and fixtures and whatnot, and he pokes his head into the basement, and a little boy screams. And he finds a, how old is he, 10 years old roughly? It was like 12, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Just basically chained to a to a to a filthy mattress on the floor, pitch black, with with the walls covered in more mattresses, you know, acoustically baffled, and, and the kid is naked and filthy, and has he has no idea how long he's been in there, but. Yeah, he finds a boy who's been kidnapped and stashed in that basement, and and after that things kick into high gear. Which the rescue was kind of interesting because, um, first of all, it's, it's pretty much stated that he'll only go into houses where he's pretty sure he's going to get what other, what other people didn't want to steal. So our thought is that like this kind of, we're guessing that this house has been pretty worked over. So my last thing I expected was to find someone like a captive somewhere in this house. But I guess it makes sense if you're trying to hide someone that you kidnapped I mean, I'm not a kidnapper, so this doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> but um, I guess that would make sense. Good, to, good save, good yeah. save. There. <laughs> yeah, I always thought the mattresses, uh, you know, on Rob's walls were for you know for better podcast audio. But now I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> that's not that's that's a bad thing to have mattresses attached to your walls. Um, that's horrible. I really wish I didn't say that. Um, so yeah, it, it's a great surprise, um, but. Those little things like I'm only going to take stuff from houses that people have already kind of picked over paints him as this really kind of 
thoughtful and gentle person. Um, and then when he, he goes to rescue this kid, uh, <laughs> there's this interesting moment that I thought was nice was, uh, so obviously he wants to get the kid out of there and get him, you know, uh, to a hospital or to safety or whatever. And so he, he has to go get a saw to cut the, the chain. So he has to leave the kid behind and, um, he, he shuts the door to the ba- to the basement, which only in retrospect, he realized was probably terrifying for the kid. Cause the kid probably thought, well, that's, that's my one chance and it's gone. Um, but then he saves the kid, gets him in the, gets him in his truck and realizes I've left all my stuff behind and I'm essentially a criminal and I have to go get this stuff because this is the only way I can make a living. So he has to leave the kid alone again to go get his tools. So it's this kind of moment where it's like his quote unquote criminal life of, of stealing copper and stuff from these, these derelict houses kind of gets in the way of him being like, cause any other person would just kind of just jump in the car and go. But, uh, he has to kind of pause and take care of this other thing before he can, he can move on with, with getting the kid to the hospital. And, and <clears throat> I think the one thing that was worse than leaving him in the basement for those, for that minute where he had to run outside and, and get a saw was leaving him in the truck when he went back to get his other tools, because he realizes afterward that that's probably exactly how the kid was stashed by the kidnapper to get him to the house. So in, in doing his absolute best to rescue this kid, he's sufficiently terrified him even more. I will say that was one of my favorite scenes in the book in that for, for the, the reasons you guys talked about were very real. So, you know, Rob had said, well, you know, maybe someone would just hop in the car and leave. And I don't know. I mean, you know, the most important thing to you is the most important thing to you at the moment. And if that's your, your employment, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's this kid, but you know what? He's in the car and I can take a few minutes and go get my, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of tools. And I thought that was all done very realistic as he has these, realizations about closing the door about leaving the kid in the truck about leaving his stuff you know i thought that that was in in my opinion one of the best written scenes in, in the book because it really spoke to me on a, on a level of of reality and not you know the kind of you know hero worship or something we might see in another book where you know he's whisked away to safety real quickly so i don't know i really like that that scene a lot and and i think practically speaking it, it was accurate on as well, because had had the child been bleeding or had a visible open wound or gasping for his last breath, he wouldn't have done that. But he discovered the kid alive intact and got him out of there. The kidnapper wasn't coming back at that point, he knew. So he could take the time to do that. And again, having done construction and worked with much more experienced guys than myself i can tell you that you know the tools of your trade how you make your living you take really seriously and uh few things cause as much anger and resentment as having your stuff lost or stolen yeah it definitely did come across as as very authentic um um which yeah the whole scene was great i i fully agree and then he gets the kid to the hospital Um, and, and that's, that's all that, that goes really well too, because it's just such an awkward thing because he doesn't really know what to do. And I think there was even a moment where, um, in retrospect, I guess someone had taken a picture of him bringing the kid in and he was talking about how he, he didn't know 
how his face should look or like he wasn't sure what kind of like the look on his face meant it wasn't her heroism it was something else so this whole scene with the introduction of the kid up to the point where now he's a hero i thought was very very authentic and really well done and that's really where the story kind of um you know takes off it seems like we did a lot of setup but that's really where the story starts um kelly the protagonist he um uh, obviously, you know, becomes famous. He's on all the news reports, uh, and you know, there's a reunion um, news report where you know he gets to meet the parents of the kid, and he continues to be kind of socially awkward, which is, um, I don't know, like in the one position you don't want to be socially awkward in, I guess, is that one where you're involved in saving like a naked like eleven or twelve year old boy, and, and he does some things <laughs> unintentionally. That I, I don't want to say they raise questions, but they make the situation kind of uncomfortable. Well, I think, and again, I'll speak carefully here, not to you know spoil anything, but but this is where where the writing gets really elliptical, and and if that's the right word, he, Matt gets deliberately indirect about things about Kelly's past and, and, and events that befell him and possibly some things that he did before moving to Detroit that, that color the way he sees this kind of judgment coming at him. And I'm not sure if I made any sense by trying to be so careful in my phrasing there, but I, I think some of the suspicion that comes his way is is natural. Like, what were you doing there? and or, or why would you say that under these circumstances? But I think a lot of it, too, is paranoia from his own past. And I could be way off base there. I felt the same thing um, that you did. And, yeah, it's a combination of, I think in, we're in, in a time where pretty much everybody, even the most, like, harmless people are, are massive stranger danger kind of things. Um, so there's like a high alert already with children in general and then add to it, like you said, our, our protagonist's paranoia about his past hundred percent. I fully agree with you. Um, but what it does and especially in the, in the very vague way that he, he kind of talks about the possibility of things that have happened in the past for, for Kelly is that it makes you so fucking uncomfortable for like the whole book am i right <laughs> yeah this is yeah this, this is where it gets really interesting so without giving too much away um a, a couple of things happen so first again in very very true to, to real life fashion you know women from the church show up to feed him because he's a hero he's offered a legitimate job working in deconstruction so he's actually working with a company that tears things down and is able to use his scrapping you know skills or whatever to help there he's approached by the the local you know watch slash vigilante group that patrols the zone and and added as a member to their thing but we get to see a little bit more of his past i don't know how much we want to talk about this but um some things that happened to him previously, and, and he had made reference to a woman and a boy that a woman he was involved with who had a son who he referred to as the boy, um, and, and their breakup and, and him losing his house and then losing them and these things that happened that brought him ultimately that caused him to come to Detroit. 
And uh, that's where, yeah, it gets really weird. And you find out some things about him that do color every interaction he has, and for me at least, and, and I'm guessing for Rob too, it, for the rest of the book. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and really, probably we, we don't want to wander too far along in the story after this, but um, from this point forward, um, all this stuff that uh, wasn't in his life before, like having a girlfriend and saving the boy and having all this attention, is kind of stirring up the dust in his life. And we're starting to become uncomfortable by it. But it also motivates him. Um, it stirs up some of his kind of anger and um, his drive um, for... I think the word revenge was used in um, in the synopsis, so I think it's okay to say that. And and so now it's like we got to catch the bad guy. Yeah, he becomes the the would be detective. Um, that you know, which which is a great a great trope when it's done well. And and for this, it's not. Um, I don't want to say it's not done. I think it's done really well, but it's done in a much less tropey kind of way so whenever you have the the person that becomes the detective they're usually really good at it all of a sudden he's not he's not he's just kind of wandering around hoping to stumble into some information that's going to lead him to this kidnapper but he makes a poor choice and i don't think that and even if we're not going to go any further into the story we we have to acknowledge that there's kind of this awkward situation with the boy and that he becomes he befriends the boy which does nothing to add to our level of comfort reading the rest of the book and in, in many cases you know comes up with with Jackie his girlfriend and with the boy's parents and the boy has a brother and like what is this relationship you have with this kid so it uh, it becomes interesting and uh and, and probably a little uncomfortable I think uncomfortable but not so much so I, I think I think Matt withheld just the right amount of information to keep our sympathies from waning. So as uncomfortable as I was, I'm still rooting for the scrapper, for the protagonist, because this is, it it becomes about him outwardly seeking revenge on behalf of this boy, but at the same time trying to once and for all you know, conquer this stuff from his past. And that sounds really highfalutin. And, and, you know, the book does a much better job of, of describing that than I just did. But, but because we don't know the gory details of his life with this woman and her child or of his childhood, which is also referred to very, very vaguely, because we don't know those details, our, our sympathies ultimately stay with him, even though it's uncomfortable staying with him. Absolutely. Um, and I think that as much as, like you said, Matt did a great job of just giving us the right amount of information or withholding uh, the right amount of information, he does a great job of drawing into question um, the... Uh, motives, motivations of of Kelly, and also how really sane is this dude? Um, mm-hmm. So it was a nice balancing act of I, I, I'm a hundred percent bought into the fact that he had pure intentions and he wanted to make sure that that kid was safe. There's no question in my mind. But, Likewise, yeah, I agree. But who is he protecting the kid from? How much was he protecting it from? 
the kid from the kidnapper and who else was he protecting the kid from? There was this kind of vagueness to it that was like just built this like giant ball of tension when you're reading the story. Yeah, and and you said something about you know calling motives in the question. I think I think the way the story evolves, other people's motives become just as suspect as Kelly's, the scrappers, uh, the the parents. Obviously, on the surface, they're grateful to have their child back, but it, he makes no secret right from the start. The the parents are divorced. So there's some tension there. The, the, the boy's brother is not a blood sibling. So even in the boy's immediate family, the, the, there's suspect to the motivations, like just how much do they want to protect this boy? I, I think the only person whose motives we don't question that are very crystal clear are the detective who kind of knocks on Kelly's door every now and then. And I, if memory serves me, correct me if I'm wrong, the detective is, I think, the only character in the book who is given, who goes by his proper name throughout the story. He's called Sanchez, right? But, but whereas the other boxer has a name, uh, the boy is the boy, his girlfriend is the girl with the limp, but I believe the only person whose, whose intentions are unassailable are Detective Sanchez. Am I, am I correct? Uh, I think you're right, because even the kid's parents are just named the father and the mother. I don't think their names are ever right. given. The brother isn't. Um, the kidnapper, obviously, we don't know who that is. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think you, you're on to something. I don't think I noticed that, but I think you're right. I think we're going to put a wrap on it story-wise. Um, that's it. Comes a detective story from here. and uh, <laughs> It's weird, because... Yeah. I say that because that's really what it is, right? I mean, it even says in the in the in the synopsis, but it's so weird because it's not like any other you know would be detective story that that I've read. So it's it's kind of interesting. Um. So there are a couple of other things that are of interest. <laughs> there are three, um, I believe, just three kind of weird interludes, and they're actually marked as different um, types of chapters because they're given location names. So. The first one, now remember, this takes place in Detroit, and, and the first one takes place in Guantanamo Bay, which is a little bit of a leap from, from one to the other. Rob, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this is an entirely separate part of the book with entirely different characters. Um, and essentially the story is there's a rapper who's going to Guantanamo to meet with a specific prisoner, um, to try and do a documentary in order to draw attention to what's going on to try and get him released. Um, and if, yeah, if that sounds familiar to anybody, <laughs> um, this actually happened. So the the rapper most most deaf. Am I saying that right? Most deaf. All right. I know you're you're far more into the rap lingo than I am. Um, this like actually, names? Well, with with anything rap related, I think. No? Sure. Sure. Um, so, you know, a third of the way into the book, we have this this interlude where it's most deaf having, a you know, going to Guantanamo Bay and, and uh, a little bit of a documentary, one chapter documentary on his experience, both with that and then immediately what happened afterwards, which is a, you know, was a viral video a, a few years ago of, of him 
being force fed or attempting to force feed himself, having people force feed him like this prisoner in Guantanamo Bay. Because of the hunger strikes, there was a lot of the prisoners were doing hunger strikes where they just would not eat anymore. And um, quote unquote, for their safety or for their health, they were being force fed through tubes, which apparently not the most pleasant thing in the world. I don't know if Craig, do you have anything to answer add to that? I, 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 I really don't. I was, um, I, I, I'll, I'll admit it straight up. I was not savvy to this viral video, so I didn't know that this was anything other than, than I assume this was fiction. This was part of the rest of the story. I did not realize he was alluding to a, a real event until the second interlude, which was, uh, uh, not in name, but a, a, a I think an oblique reference or or little scenario from the life of of George Zimmerman. He didn't name him, but the but the facts lined up pretty quickly, and so that got me thinking. Perhaps this first one is based in in something real, and it wasn't until I looked at reviews afterward that I saw that it was. And just for anybody who is living. I don't know, somewhere where there's no internet, I guess. Um, George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin, who was, if I remember correctly, a 14-year-old boy who was not armed. Um, George Zimmerman claimed self-defense and was acquitted um, by a jury of his peers in Florida oof, three years ago now, maybe four? Something like that, yeah. It was, yeah, something like that. And George Zimmerman has has more felony arrests than all the people he he claims to be worried about. Yeah, a real piece of shit. Yeah, from I don't think anyone's going to argue <laughs> that point with you. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess I was being a little too polite about it, wasn't I? <laughs> That's okay. Um, here, here's my question. Um, oh, and there was one more toward the end, which when I was... The first thing I did was I looked at kind of the table of contents to see what we were working with. And I noticed that the last kind of interlude was took place in like Chernobyl basically um so there was there was the Guantanamo one then later on there was the Florida one and then there was one in Pripyat Pripyat however you want to say it which is a city um at a near the the Chernobyl I think it was where the Chernobyl um, thing went went down. Anyway, whatever. I recognized the name, so I knew it was the Chernobyl thing. I'm struggling with tying these parts into the book, and so I'm interested to hear what you two have to say about how they influence or, or affect the overall story. I was a little fresher on this um, when I finished the book earlier this week. Um, the first one kind of caught me off guard, and I, I didn't know what to think of it. Um, but in reading the second one, the, the Zimmerman one, that's really right about the time that Kelly... Um, goes, kind of becomes a little vigilante in, in his style. So he's working with the watch and he's out looking for the kidnapper. And I think maybe all three of those were reflective of what was going on with the character himself at the time. So he's out there kind of doing a vigilante thing, but Kelly's a little down on himself because of stuff that happened in the past. Um, so maybe he's feeling a little George zimmerman E at the time, and I don't remember what my, my tie-in was to the Guantanamo thing. Well, the, 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 first, the first one, the Guantanamo, is just, is just, if I had to just throw a 
throw a guess out here. We're we're getting a, a, a snapshot of of real global injustice of 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 a real inequity, which kind of that's that's the ground floor of what's what would what's been going on in Detroit. And then I think you're absolutely right. The the glimpse of George Zimmerman is is really what happens. Vigilantism rarely works out like Batman more often than not. It it really goes awry as it as it did with George Zimmerman. So yeah, we're getting a, a glimpse into into Kelly maybe second guessing himself because wasn't the third one on the outskirts of Chernobyl talking about the, the renewed growth and how, you know, without people around, how the, how the wildlife is becoming a little more abundant or am I mixing that up with an article I read recently? <laughs> um, no, I think and, right. and I think that one too comes right after it's right at the end of the book. So it's just past the, the climax of the book. And, and I think in some ways Kelly might even be looking if he were reading that man's story as here's a guy who's blown, you know, who everything around him has been blown up, so to speak. And I think at that point in his in his life after the climax, he may be feeling a little similar, but seeing kind of, as you had said, Craig, the, the future, you know, like a, a rebirth sort of. I dig it. I like it. Yeah. That makes sense. To be fair, it was a really weird way to do that in all three scenarios. I, mean, I think it was an intentionally like disconnected, like it was a ref- like reflections more than like um like an intentional like, hey, this is like this. It was just like this is a reflection of what's happening here now that you've explained it the way you have. It reminded me a little bit of and, and you see this I, and I say this because I watched a horror anthology last night, but um kind of like the stuff that's playing on the TV in the background that that clues you into what's happening in the story that makes sense when it's in a movie or in a TV show. Oh yeah, that makes sense. That's a good analogy. Kind of along that, those lines. So we took two news stories and I'm going to assume that the Chernobyl stuff at the end was not based on a real person. I I don't have any reason to say that. Maybe this guy did a documentary or some interviews. The first two were, were clearer, far clearer that they reflected. I was going to say celebrities, but one celebrity and one, you know, I don't know, whatever, Zimmerman, a, a news story, I guess. Piece of shit. Piece of shit. <laughs> that too. I'll say piece of shit all day long. You guys don't have to say it. I'll just call him a piece of shit. No, no argument here. And we just lost one listener in Florida. George Zimmerman, if you're listening, piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, do we uh, do we want to go into some quotes? I have a pile of quotes. Well, Rob, then you kick it off. No, I need to. I need to look through my. <laughs> I need to look through that. <laughs> well, he means a pile. He's actually got to sort through them first. Here, I'll go just in case because I don't really have. Not that I don't have. Again, it's a hardcover book, so I didn't wasn't really annotating as I read. I'm hoping I can cross paths with Matt and get him to sign it, but uh, let's see. I just want to make sure that one of you guys doesn't steal it. Here's one. This one just I thought was really elegant. Uh, I think he's at a support group or something for for grieving people. There was no word in the language for a man who had lost his child before he ever got a chance to say the word father. 
So holy shit, that whole paragraph where he talks about, um, you know, the line before it just to set that up is Kelly liked the people who couldn't name their grief the best. If your betrothed died, you were not a widower. There was no word in the language for a man who had lost his child before ever got just brilliant stuff. That was probably yeah. my favorite line in the whole book. So you you did a good job making sure no one stole that out from under you. Just <laughs> <laughs> I learned that last time. I should try to get the drop drop on these things here. Um. Well, we can always retake. So if this is one of yours, I can. I can hand it <laughs> you right you can just read it and then record over mine, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He who edits controls history, or something like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> one of the things I really liked about the book was the the introspective moments where Kelly was just thinking about things in life in general um, especially while witnessing the kind of slow decay of the city that he lived in um, and this is one of those uh, this is one of those moments and it really ties into what we were just talking about about um, rebirth and stuff so I think it's 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 a good time to t do this quote a howl of wind came banging through a front door the repeated slamming of a thrown bolt against a door frame shivered his skin he knew it wasn't human voices that held back the fall of cities. It wasn't any number of people sharing a room. It wasn't the presence of family meals. Everywhere he went, he saw the quiet creep of falling down, falling in. A contest of wills. The agonies of architects against the patience of nature. Yeah, he does have a, he does have quite a way of describing stuff, doesn't he? Here's one which actually ties in a little bit to, to Craig's um, historical um, soliloquy about Detroit and the death of uh, Detroit. Um, more so related to cars. An anxiety of attractive credit terms secured with a down payment of wages earned and a loan guaranteed by the promise of more paychecks which had not come. That one stuck with me. I remember that. I didn't mark it, but I remember it. Yeah, this one is, is for me, the beginning of a... Of something that I think I think he did really artfully throughout the rest of the book right the moment he discovers the boy and and you know he opens the basement and hears the voice um he says as soon as Kelly heard the boy's voice the moment split and in the aftermath of that cry Kelly thought he lived both possibilities in simultaneous sequence there was an empty basement, or else there was a basement with a boy in a bed, and it seemed to Kelly he had gone into both rooms. And for the rest of the book, Matt kind of circles this same idea again. Like, we're, we're, we're dealing with, with two different stories. Not two different stories, but two different characters. This is where Kelly's mind kind of splits in two. He calls himself... You know, there's the scrapper and there's the salver, the scrapper who would have just gone back to doing what he was doing and the salver, you know, which obviously refers to salvaging, but sounds obviously close like savior too. And, and the way he kind of goes back and forth between those two mindsets, I think he does that very elegantly. I really like that line where it all begins though. This was just really well put together. There's, um, the reporter who talks him into doing the reunion show and then, you know, wants to interview him and stuff They're uh, They're at a point where she's helping him pick out clothes to, to be on TV with. And she actually comes into the dressing room and, and is helping him um, 
you know, what a, not get dressed, but helping him spruce up a little bit for, for the newscast. The confines of the dressing room were tight and their bodies kept touching at new angles. There, they were all brushes, but they started to add up. He knew better than to expect more. Yesterday, she'd said he was a hero, but this was only the story the News at Five had wanted to tell. I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. From this book? I was going to say, where, how? Oh, just listen. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not super light, but I find it kind of charming in a way. Once they played a bowling game inside a bowling alley, and he grew irritated when she liked it better than the real thing, but she said she preferred wearing her own shoes. That's fair. Okay, yeah, well done. Ha ha ha. Craig, did you have another one you wanted to do? Oh, uh, th- those I, I've noted a few others, but those two were my real standouts. You know that uh, um, there's I think one jumps to mind only because, and this will sound really egomaniacal, but it just sounds so close to something I I wrote myself, or was it? And that's a really horrible way to introduce a quote. I realize. Um, concrete everywhere, cement everywhere else, gray clouds and gray snow and gray earth. And that that sounds maybe out of context a little underwhelming, but I think he it's very hard to keep describing this this abandonment and desolation along with the wintry weather over and over again without getting repetitive and and he manages to do it but that line that little meditation on the gray very briefly is just like the final blows of the hammer like at that point i mean it was i could close my eyes and i'm inside one of these abandoned buildings at that point yeah i actually remember that that stood out to me too as a as as just wonderful description Absolutely. Um, this one is just, I don't know. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm taking this the, or if, if he meant it the way I'm, I'm taking this, but um, he picks the girl with the limp up and they're, they're going to the bar and he's kind of talking about what she's wearing in the sentences leading up to this. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Admire the way the Jersey shapelessness draped her form worked by suggestion. You couldn't tell she limped when she was sitting down, standing still. I kind of thought that that was a little bit of him really kind of side hating the limp. That's the right way to do it. Like making her more attractive by the fact that she's sitting down and you can't tell that she has the limp. You know what I mean? So I, I thought that was, uh, that was real good, which leads into one more. And then I'm, I'm, I'm done after this one. She told him she couldn't hurry anywhere and he didn't argue. He liked where they were starting and what it required. There were other places that they might end up, but he thought it might take something dramatic to get him there talking about how he felt about their relationship I like it <clears throat> I've got I'll just do a couple more this one and I know I've talked about this on other episodes as well one of the things I love most when I'm reading books is when something that happens in the book affects something with a person's mind or it's implied that it does one of the things we didn't talk about much was that Kelly um throughout the book goes kind of up and down as far as how much he likes to work out and be fit. Um, but also at some point he gets really into, um, boxing or fighting. I don't know if it's boxing or whatever, but, uh, he becomes kind of a fighter, very into the being a fighter. And, um, 
I, I just love it when a physical action affects um, something as precious as a memory. So this quote really stuck with me. When their fists connected with his skull, he heard memories realigning into new spaces. I just love that. I love how that, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it, but those types of quotes just really work for me. It's it's not a quote, but I I can wrap up mine by just saying with with all the with all the name play that that he does throughout by giving people these monikers uh, in in lieu of their actual given name. I think my favorite of all was was the 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 boxer that he he is eyeing from across the gym for several months before they acted the guy who is considered the the absolute badass of everyone there has no name other than the bringer and I, I, something about that i i just loved yep absolutely the bringer i've got two there's one i'm looking for it i was looking at here's a quick one i i, I like i'm going to read the quote and i'm going to kind of explain why i like it it might not be the brother's fault not in the ultimate reveal of cause and effect the reason I like that one is because, like, throughout the whole book, again, we have that kind of comfort level that's really kind of jarred by everything that's going on with people's pasts and stuff. And it really causes you to think about, like, how bad is a person and when are they no longer bad and what can we blame and how can we blame and stuff. So, like, this was just a moment where Kelly was thinking to himself about things and it just fit perfectly with, with like, how I was trying to fit my moral judgments of the characters as, as the book went along. I really loved the... Um, I just really love the way he wrote this. And then I'm going to wrap up as well. Because we could probably do a lot more quotes. but And I've probably got 30 or so. Because one day there would be no one living who remembered the form of your face or the sound of your voice. And on that day it would be as if you'd never existed. This was the final death of the unremarkable. This is fucking chilling. I'm just I'm just thinking more about the that name. Because we've... I mean, Scrapper, first of all, is he could not have picked a more perfect title for the book. It, it works on absolutely so many levels, you know, but then at the end of it all, you've got him in the ring facing off with the bringer. So you've got the Scrapper who rips things out and steals basically and takes him away versus somebody who's going to bring it, bring something in. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it. <laughs> It just it just works so well for me. I, I like that you said that because I didn't think about it that way. What I did tell Rob off the air, and Rob can probably figure out a way to cut all this back in somewhere, is um, when we first said, hey, we're going to review this, You know, I didn't need to read a, a synopsis to want to review Matt Bell. And I thought, oh, the scrapper, god damn it, if this is about a guy who street fights, I'm just going to be pissed. And then I read the synopsis, and I was like, this is excellent. It's about, about a guy who scraps metal. I mean, think about the, the opportunities and abandoned buildings that could bring to the story. And then, God damn it, he turns the guy into a, a scrapper fighter at the end. And I was like, kind of threw my hands up in the air as a roller coaster of how I felt about the term scrapper. Well, yeah, I mean, it worked on a number of levels, you know, because it's, you know, metaphorically, he's doing, you know, he's, he's doing the same thing with his own life, right? So I, I overthink things, though. So I, it, this could be all completely just bullshit. Matt might just be doubled over laughing as he listens to this right now. I don't know. 
it, it makes enough sense that Matt is now sitting somewhere going, and you know what I thought about naming this guy the bringer is the scrapper takes things away. So if, if he meant it that way or not, it fits. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, then we're into wrap-ups. Um, who wants to go first? Well, I'll, I'll go first because, like I said, I, I live in a glass house, so the star thing makes me uncomfortable. All, all I'll say is that I, I love this, and and it's it's one I will be passing along to people, definitely. So, uh, how, do, how do I stamp that? Do I say both thumbs up? Do I say, you know, the Craig's Book Club? I don't know. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Well done, sir. That's good. Livius, I'm going to make you go next. All right. Um, wow, this is this is a book that, and I knew, and even through this conversation, sometimes I go, you know what, this conversation that we're going to have for 40 minutes about this book is really going to, going to solidify my, my wrap-up and how I feel about it. Um, it was a little bit of a roller coaster for me. So I started off and I thought, oh my God, description, 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 and I, I didn't like it for the first 30 five pages maybe i read this digitally so i'm kind of just going off memory here um but once we really got into kelly his relationship with jackie and he saves the boy the story really really took off for me um it was unsettling um at best because as craig alluded to earlier you know we are rooting for a guy but there are some really questionable things in this guy's past that maybe doesn't make him the 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 really clear-cut hero of a story but um we talked earlier about revenge and i don't know that we talked enough about redemption and i think that the the power in this book is that we've got somebody that and i don't think any of us could say you know that this guy is guilt-free he, he has some some demons in his past that are pretty serious but what we're watching is a guy who's trying to make his past decisions right by doing something right going forward so you can stay with him as a protagonist um through that um you know visceral reactions that's that's what i had to this you know was kind of uh at times maybe questioning my own ability to to like and support this character but i found myself doing it anyway and i guess any book that has a you know that 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 gives you a gut reaction to something um it can't it can't be all well i don't know i guess we read some ones i've had some gut reactions that weren't that good in this case um it's definitely a book that's going to stick with me the writing is beautiful um, I, I'm, I think we illustrated it pretty well through the quotes, but there's, you know, we talked about this 200 episodes ago when we did Cataclysm, baby. There's no question that Matt Bell can write um, beautifully. And in this book, it was beautifully, but in that very, very dark, dark way. So overall, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it four stars. All right. Um, I was just trying to think of, of the best way to talk about what I liked and didn't like about the book. Um, and it's really just complicated. So I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. Um, Livia said a lot of things that I agree with. Um, the writing is very beautiful. Um, and the thing about redemption, I think is important because um, a lot of this book is not necessarily so much about what people do as it is what people are trying to do. And um, for some reason that was just much more impactful for me than if it was just a series of, cause and effect kind of actions and reactions so um that was really the focus is like i want to be this person or i want to you know um do this for this person was was like all the human interaction was was focused around that which was great 
and the setting was just so stark and tragic in a way that's close to home um, because it, it is a you know it's a wasteland in our country and um, so it, it, it had a strong effect on me as well um, overall the book just worked for me really well I even I have to give him super props for for making me so uncomfortable and making me question how much do I like this character how much can I how much credit can I give him you know it, it was just very off balance the whole time but I think that was the intent and I think it worked great so um, I really dug the book too I'm gonna go I just want to one up you again Livia so I'm gonna go four and a half stars. Oh, the race, the race to the stars. So, um, yeah, overall, I mean, this guy can fucking write. I mean, I don't know, there's no other way to say it. So, I mean, we're. Yeah, dude, I remember when we were talking about um, Warm and Bound, which Craig's story, Active Contrition, is in, which is a great story, an awesome story. Love that story. Um, we both really loved Mantodea, and I think it was one of your top three, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that and still still do. I still think about that story, which is got to tell you something two years later after reading, you know, hundreds of books and hundreds yeah. and hundreds of short stories. Yeah, it still pops up in my head from time to time that it's solid stuff. Yeah. I don't know if anybody, I, I, I'm oblivious. I know you've met him in person, Craig. I don't know if you have, but he is like the, Matt Bell is like the nicest dude. He's just like super calm, super cool, super nice. He's just like a wonderful dude. I've, I've never met him. We've exchanged a few notes. Uh, we have friends in common, obviously. And I, I realized during the course of this, this discussion, I've been referring to him as Matt, as though we're drinking buddies, when in fact I've, I've never met him in the flesh. So I, I probably should have been saying Bell or Mr. Bell or the author, but it's too late for that now. No, no. Rob can edit every time you said Matt. Just... <laughs> Let me offer that up for you. No, Here, I'm gonna. I'll just. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you one. <clears throat> Bell. So now you can splice that in over my mat, so I'm not, you know, treating him disrespectfully by being too familiar. You know. You know what I would do instead. Like, if that was a true concern, I would send Matt Bell a message, and I'd say, "Is it cool if we call you Matt on the episode?" And he'd say yes, and then I would just move on with my life. <laughs> All right, moving on to other stuff. So, Craig, I have received um, no less than three personal messages that said, hey, how the hell did you have Craig Clevenger on and not talk about, oh, I don't know, a, a book in progress, a book that's been sent off to agents, a movie, anything like that. So we're going we're gonna to throw some questions your way and feel free to not answer them. But um, the, 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 the listeners demand the interrogation. So um, we'll start with uh, Dermaphoria the film have you seen it i have i have seen i've seen it four times maybe more yes so the short answer is yes okay um how what, what's it like i mean seeing it i'm, I'm not going to ask you what your opinion on it is um because that wouldn't probably wouldn't be fair but what's it like seeing you know something that you worked on so hard um transferred over to another medium and i'm going to make some assumptions here i'm not sure how much involvement you had in that so if you want to talk about your level of involvement but you know what's it like seeing someone else take take your baby and turn it into something um, different a, a completely different medium uh it, it, it's cool um you know very few writers have a hundred percent you know successful relationships with with 
Hollywood or the adaptations of, of their books. They're different mediums, and it's, it's rare that something is adapted faithfully and successfully. Um, car chases and shootouts are thrown in, and Lord knows what else. So with Dermaphoria, um, they they took my input very seriously. I wasn't around for any of the filming, but I saw a very early, very early draft of the script, and I gave Ross Clark, the, the director, screenwriter, some ample notes that he took very seriously. Um, and I was, I was really happy with the result. My, my chief regret is obviously it was, it was an independent film without a huge budget, which meant they couldn't do a lot of the more hallucinatory parts of the story, which are a lot of the story. So there aren't any, um, robotic cockroaches transmitting in code. There aren't any nine-foot stormtrooper angels coming from the sky and kicking on doors and all the other fun stuff I like to do. But, but around that, I think Ross did a fantastic job of extracting the sort of fractured, fragmented, hallucinatory love story within there. Um, and it's just a lot of fun seeing seeing the stuff refracted through the actors, how they deliver certain lines that I envisioned a certain way. Um, it, it's weird, too, because actually, as of last month, Dermaphoria is 10 years old. So it's a book I wrote 12 years ago and have not revisited except to read the audiobook several years ago still. So my memory of the book is, is kind of hazy, and each time I've seen the movie, it's been a slightly different cut. So I started to feel a little amnesiac myself watching it, like, and that was good. Did I, did I write that? I did that a lot throughout. So it's, a, it was, it's fun. It's very, very cool to see. I, I don't know how lucky I'll be going forward with other adaptations if they get that far. I'm just going to go ahead and say purely selfishly, did you ever get to talk to Walton Goggins? Because that guy is a brilliant actor. Um, he's a bit of a recluse. Um, I got a really lovely, very sweet text message from him uh, the night, the very first night of the, uh, the premiere up north at, at, the, at a film festival in San Jose that uh, was very laudatory. But uh, no, I've I've not not had a chance to meet him in person. I hope I do, though. He seems like a lovely chap. When we talk about um, Walton Goggins and the cast, um, got, you know, ha half the people in this um, in this movie are from, like, favorite TV shows of mine. So I, I, I'm a big Vampire Diaries fan, which is where Joseph Morgan got his... I don't know if I want to say a start, but that's where, where his name kind of started uh, showing up. And now he has his own show, The Originals. Ron Perlman is in it. Um, you know, who doesn't know Ron Perlman? Walton Goggins from two of my all-time favorite shows. Kate Walsh, who I've been watching since, oh God, here we go, since Grey's Anatomy started. You know, you got a, a, a great, great cast for this. Um, do you feel they were all cast pretty well? I mean, I realize that's a little softball question, but um, how, I guess how excited were you when you saw some of the names that were going to be attached to this is probably a better way to put it. I was, I was excited just, just to have that kind of star power. I'll, I'll, I'll admit freely and, and humbly that I had no idea who Joseph Morgan was. And I'm, uh, he totally delivers the role and I'm happy that he is, he has the star power that he does because 
on a purely mercenary level, that could mean, you know, book sales once the thing's back in print. Um, I really like the way Ross, the director, cast because in hindsight, my portrayals were very homogenous across the board and Ross mixed up, uh, mixed things up sufficiently to reflect the change in locales, New Orleans. Um, I, I imagined Anslinger as a very dapper, sort of a young Mickey Rourke. I just kind of wanted to go against type and, and not have the grizzled loner, alcoholic, tough guy cop, so I wanted a very smooth, likable guy. That's who I envisioned, and Ron Perlman isn't either one of those. He kind of did his own thing and was just marvelous. Um, really good. There's a point where, you know, the, the scene in the in the strip, you know, the peep show booth thing where he makes a joke about his daughter, there's a moment of silence where Ron Perlman just stares at him, and I thought he was going to deck him. It was genuinely frightening. Um, Walton Goggins as Manhattan White is worth the price of admission just for the scene where he's eating crayfish. That alone <laughs> is fantastic. Like I said, they could like I said they couldn't do a lot with. Uh, uh, I, I exercised a lot of my insect fears in writing that book, and they really couldn't do too much with that. But the scene, they, they, they sort of, the way they shoot the, the crayfish alludes to a lot of the shots they have of cockroaches, and watching them eat those is alone worth the price of admission. Um, Otto was my favorite, because uh, in the book, he's a Pomeranian, um, and he, he hired um, Anwan Glover, one of the heavyweights from the wire he was uh slim charles i think was the character's name and so if you know who anwan glover is you know that that man is not a pomeranian um so they made they made otto a uh rottweiler and if you haven't read the book sorry i spoiled a lot for you but you know what can i say if you haven't read the book you are an enemy of this podcast i think it's <laughs> Well, it's not really your fault either, you know. I'm to back up a bit. Part of the reason I don't, you know, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions, you know, talk about whatever y'all want, but uh, I don't lead with that simply because, you know, my career has been kind of in deep freeze for several years now, you know, with the uh, uh, collapse of Macadam Cage and and all of that. I was off bookshelves for a very long time, so. I've kind of been out of circulation, so that's why I don't really sound the trumpets too much on that front. So if you haven't read the book, it's not your fault. It's out of print. I'm hoping to rectify that. Okay, just to kind of tie up the movie conversation, um, as far as I'm aware, the only thing that is in the way now is finding distribution, right? Yes, and I believe they've already taken care of that, but I'm not 100% certain. I cool. believe they have, though. I don't know what the exact status is right now, though. Yeah, that's the question I was trying to avoid was, when do we get to see it? But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> here, here. I mean, I'll, it's not going to be a summer tentpole release. I mean, we all know that. I think what Rob was really trying to say is, when when will we see it? And what he means is me and him. We don't really <laughs> care about anybody else. Let's, let's be honest. We want to know when we can see it. So if there's a different date you have in mind, just let us know. 
and uh, we'll we'll make ourselves available. Yeah, it's it's out of my hands entirely. I think he's he's uh, they're they're drumming up uh, 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 awareness with uh, you know submitting to a few more film festivals, but I believe the distribution deal is in place. I don't know the details on that, but I will uh, I will throw those out on my sundry social media tentacles as soon as I know the story. All right. Excellent. Um, well, thanks for talking about it. I know it's one of those things where it's like you probably have as many questions as we do. Honestly, I, I, I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it's, that it's done, that it's in the can and that it's, that I'm happy with it. And, um, and, and I know distribution, whatever, however uphill that may or may not be is really a matter of time. Uh, it's just however they want to do it. I mean, the worst case scenario, they can, it, gone are the days where if nobody wants a film, it doesn't turn up in theaters. You know, there's, there's so many options now, so it's going to happen. I'm, I'm kind of looking towards the future, so I don't really think about it a whole lot, to be honest. I'm, I'm, it's done, and I know it's going to see the light of day. I'm more concerned with the book getting back in print than I am anything else right now. Is that um, is that a likelihood? Is there something in the works to to see the book in print, or I, do you know? I guess is well the the print rights have reverted back to me. Okay. Um, mercifully, that was that was a decree from the Authors Guild um, following uh, McAdam Cage trying to file bankruptcy and the court kicking their case to the curb, and so the Authors Guild swooped in and and made this proclamation. So. The print rights are mine. My agent is just trying to find a home for him right now. Speaking of your agent, your agent also has Mother Howl, I believe, correct? That is correct, yes. Is there um, anything in the works that you can talk about about Mother Howl? Um, He's got that at about a, I don't know, I think a half a dozen or so, possibly more since I last spoke with him, uh, publishing houses. Um, It's a departure for me. It's a weird one, so... You know, I know it's going to be a hard sell, but um, uh, I signed on with him a year ago last summer, and following that, did a couple of rounds of, of revisions based on his notes. So adding some holiday time in after that and such, he finally uh, has been getting it out in earnest Um starting you know over the summer so i'm kind of hoping i hear something before the holidays and because come come thanksgiving all the high brass at the publishing houses all stuff their cheeks with seeds and nuts and and go aground for you know the rest of the year um they're like congress apparently (laughs) yeah so if i don't hear anything by thanksgiving i'm not going to hear anything until after the new year so i'm hoping They've had some time. Uh, one, one minor, one small major's already said no, but nobody else has said anything yet, which, which I think is good news. So uh, I believe he's trying to sell the three of them together. I could be wrong. I don't want to speak out of turn here. Um, but, yeah, he is trying to, to kind of move them as a package. Maybe he'll do that. I don't know. Um, if I'd had an agent when I first signed – uh, with McAdam Cage, I, I wouldn't have been in the predicament I was in when, when they started to circle the drain. So any aspiring writers out there, take heed, get an agent. So one thing that I, we're talking about, uh, we talked about Dermaphoria, 
Uh, we didn't mention Contortionist Handbook, but it, as far as Livius and I go, that doesn't really need mentioning because everybody knows amazing. One one of the things that I haven't had a chance to, t- to talk about with you is that um, numbers game story that was in San Francisco Noir 2. I thought it was a fantastic mm-hmm. story, and I don't think I don't yeah. think people talk about it as much as they should. And it's, it's not even a question in there. I just wanted to let you know. I fucking love that story. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was... That was fun. I think I was sandwiched in between Seth Morgan and William Volman, some real heavyweights there. But I'm not very prolific. I tend to, I don't tend, I, I fixate on one thing for the long term and I stay buried with it. So um, I, I don't move as quickly and as, and as diversely as most every other writer I know. So I think... I think you you know I can count the amount of short stories I've I've had out in the wild there. I think I've got five of them, maybe including including the one you guys published. So, yeah, people don't talk about it because I just don't really have a lot out there. But I'm glad you liked it. I had fun with that one. All right, how about giving listeners a little bit of a tease of what you're working on now? Um, working on now. The fourth book. I don't know how. The only thing I'll, I, I gave you guys, I think, the opening chapter in progress, just for fun. Yes, you Damn did. Right you did. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you've Thank seen you it. You, yeah. Um, really, all I can say about this one is, I have every my first three books I outlined exhaustively. Um, after after a certain amount of brainstorming and and roughly you know 50 pages maybe a hundred of kind of rough copy just kind of chasing my tail seeing what comes out you know comes out of my brain I will put the brakes on things and I'll spend a good two or three months working an outline um, that's not to say the outline that won't change over the course of writing the book and you know the, the plans aren't set in stone but. I always know, I always have a really detailed map, um, but each book takes me longer and longer to write, and I didn't want to take as long to finish my fourth as it took my third. So uh, I accepted Rob Roberge's invitation to join a writing group for no other reason than I would have deadlines. So I had a fire under my ass to, to get pages out to the group when we meet every month. So this is the first time I've ever worked without an outline. I have a character that's been in sort of deep space cryo sleep in my brain for several decades and um, a premise that just flew into my brain after I uh, read an article shortly after Rob invited me. And after that, I just hit the ground running and I'm just making up as I go quite literally. And I've never done this before. So, you guys have that first chapter. I'm about 150 pages in, and I still have no bloody clue how I'm going to bring it all together. I think sometimes that might uh, that might work best, maybe. I don't know. What do I know? Well, I think a lot of writers do that. I mean, I, I know many writers, you know, James Elroy outlines in, in major detail. Steve Erickson doesn't do any at all. Uh, I had a long talk with Josh Moore at a reading we did together, and he said he he never has an outline. He just wings it. So it's been kind of fun. That's awesome. 
Um, br briefly, I should mention the current project is based on uh, it grew from a seedling that was a short story called Vapor Trail that uh, Gina Frangello published on the Rumpus a few years ago. It's still up there, I believe. I remember that. That was the the UFO sighting, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember that. Damn, I forgot so, about that. That's good. So, yeah, Vapor Trail is on the rumpus, and that's what eventually is going to grow into the book I'm writing now, even though it's from a different point of view. But that narrator of Vapor Trail is uh, one of the principal characters in the current book. I also want to touch on this because I only came across this very recently. Uh, Mother Howell and the Fate mm -hmm. all come from the same from the same heart as well. I'm sorry. The the short story, The Fade, that's on that's on your website. Is that yeah? I did Mother Howell. I didn't know that up until very recently. Yeah, that's a, 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 another point of view shift. So Mother Howell is also in the third person, but. Uh, the uh that that person who wrote that that letter that is the short story it turns up in mother howell as well it's awesome well craig easter eggs here and there so i remember last time we interviewed you which was episode 36 i believe so years and years and years ago you had just mm -hmm. like um a, a huge uh list of recommendations for for writers um, what's got you? What's got you excited lately? Did I have a huge list of recommendations? It was massive. Like, like books for writers in particular, like fiction or books on the craft, or oh no, I'm sorry, books like that you've read that you were excited about. Um, not not f recommended. We don't care if writers learn how to write better. <laughs> <laughs> we're readers. We're a podcast for readers. So, <laughs> right. Um, gosh, you know, um, my reading has dwindled of late. That's part of the reason I was excited about, about doing, doing the podcast was it would, you know, be a light of fire under me to, to, you know, read some of these things that I had in the back of my, you know, on my periphery. Recently, I read, uh, Lydia Yuknovich's latest book, The, the Small Backs of Children, which was in, in sort of tone and voice similar to Scrapper, actually, um, and through, through her, I met Wendy Oritz, who is a, who is a good friend of Patrick O'Neill's, uh, one of the chaps in, uh, the writing group that Robert Bears brought me into. And I read her memoir. I'm not sure if it's her first or second, um, uh, excavations. I hope I'm getting the title right. I don't have it in front of me. Um, what else have I read? I read a James Crumley book recently. I've been overlooking him, an old American noir writer, and I know he's revered and well thought of, but I, I'm kind of underwhelmed by it, I gotta say. Um, nothing comes to mind. I've kind of been neck deep in in writing this fourth one and, and uh and doing research like nonfiction and such. So I'm not sure what else I can say. I hope that's not a letdown for you. Not in the least, my man. No, thank you. But hey, here we'll throw you. We'll throw you a little weird one. We're we're coming up on Halloween in a Halloween episode um, next week. Do you have any any good um, scary recommendations, either movies or books or whatever? Do you want to tell us a scary story? I mean, anything. Ah, <laughs> scary. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't really gravitate towards the horror genre in particular. Um, I'm trying to think movies. I, I, you know, in, in, in either books or film, I can say, I think one of the scariest films I've ever seen was a French one called Martyrs that just scared the crap out of me. Was that with um, the two sisters? Were they sisters? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, that was just, I was just cringing. And I, you know, and I've heard people have mixed reactions. They either cringed like I did or just thought it was silly. I cringed. Um, the older I get, the less threshold, the lower, the, the, the lower my threshold is for putting up with, with people in, in grave physical peril. I just, I just can't, can't do it. Um, when I stayed the night in that big empty house uh, a few weeks back, we watched uh, Strangers. It's uh, Liv Tyler. Oh, is that, and, is that the one with the... No, that's not the one with the pig masks. What the hell is that one called? For the people? Well, they had masks. They were, they were kind of pounding on the door of this remote cabin. We thought it would be an appropriate film to watch while we're staying and then get a giant empty house. Yeah, idea. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of recommendations. I can say the spookiest in a good way thing I've ever experienced was on a long drive. I was in the middle of nowhere in the dead of night in Texas driving back to California. And... Uh, it was just black, nothing around except the occasional farmhouse light way in the distance. And I was listening to Tom Waits, what's he building in there? And it was just the perfect thing to have for those circumstances. But I'm not sure if that really helps anybody. I got to be 100% honest. When we asked that question, I was like, I- I'm not really expecting him to give us like a huge list of, of, the, of the books and movies thing. But I bet you he's going to have a personal story we're going to enjoy. I just knew that was going to happen. I could probably think of more if they, if they, if I gave it some thought. But yeah, I'm just not a horror guy. You know, yes, this is Stephen Graham Jones, and his answer could be a podcast in itself, no doubt. Oh yeah, and again, with probably chocked full of personal stories. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, two weeks in a row, you have done us um, the the service of of um, helping review books, and we greatly appreciate it. Don't um. Please don't be a stranger. Feel free if there's something that's on your list, um, hit us up, and uh, maybe we can uh, maybe we can do this again sooner. I, I appreciate it. it. was It was a blast being here, and uh, uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you guys about a new book of mine on the shelves at some point when that happens. But in the meantime, it's always a gas talking to y'all. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thanks again, Craig. Uh, until next week. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading.